Welcome to episode 43 of the podcast History Does You. Today we'll be covering the American Civil War in the Western Territories. What's surprising, I think, is it took almost 42 episodes to eventually do one about the American Civil War. That was kind of a first. I didn't really realize that. But when looking at the American Civil War, I think... There's so many different aspects. There's so many different experiences that, again, you would probably dedicate a whole podcast to it, let alone a few episodes. But I'm glad I've finally got around to doing it and doing, I think, a theater and a part of the Civil War that often gets overlooked. Obviously, Gettysburg and all the battles in the East and the West, Western theaters are very important. But I think the sort of Southwest the interactions between the Confederacy, the Native American tribes living there, and then the Union all sort of represent a really interesting dynamic that, again, often gets overlooked. So super glad to have this interview with Dr. Nelson. She is super insightful and provides a lot of context to the way things played out in that theater of the war and how it ultimately had consequences that still go on to this day, which I think is quite interesting. So I hope you enjoy the interview and hope you learn a little bit more about I think part of the Civil War that often gets overlooked. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Megan Kate Nelson. She received her BA in History and Literature from Harvard University and her PhD in American Studies from the University of Iowa. She has taught U.S. History and American Studies at Texas Tech University, Cal State Fullerton, Harvard, and Brown before leaving academia to write full-time in 2014. She has written several articles and books, including The Three-Cornered War, The Union, The Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West, and is currently writing This Strange Country, Yellowstone, and the Reconstruction of America, which will be published in 2022. So welcome on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And to start off, what is your favorite subject of history, the research and talk about? Why is your favorite? And how did you become interested in the American Civil War in the Western territories? That's such a great question. I was thinking about it, and I think actually my favorite topic to think about is always the one I'm researching at the moment. (laughs) I always get really, really deeply interested and fascinated and embedded in whatever I'm writing at the time. And I think part of that, that's maybe always been the case, but I'm also, as you mentioned, I'm an American studies PhD. And one of the things about interdisciplinary work is that it kind of teaches you to embrace all different kinds of topics and materials and evidence and ideas. And what it has led to, at least for me, is kind of interest in researching all kinds of different things. So each one of my books has really, it's not just about one battle or one piece of political history or one piece of landscape history. It's combining so many different things and it's because I'm so interested in everything that's happening in a place and time that I kind of skip from one to the other and I get really excited about all the different components and all the different elements that make up kind of historical moment that becomes important to us. But when I was thinking about, I had started to teach and write about the Civil War pretty early on in my career, although my first book is about a Southern swamp called the Okefenokee in Georgia and Florida. But once I started researching the Civil War and writing about it, and I think anyone who does knows this, that you kind of go down the rabbit hole. There are so many different interesting elements of Civil War history that you can kind of muck around in that for forever if you want to. 
And so my first book about the Civil War was about destruction in the Civil War. And even as I was writing that book, I was teaching Civil War classes at Texas Tech and then at Cal State Fullerton. And I was trying to, because I was in Texas and California, I was thinking, how am I going to bring this history into the lives of my students in a more meaningful way? Because I think so much of the time we talk about the Civil War, we're talking about Virginia, right? And Gettysburg. And that's pretty much it. Maybe some Sherman in Georgia and South Carolina, but most of the time it's Virginia and Gettysburg. And so that can be hard to access. If you grow up in the West or the Midwest, you may think, what does this conflict have to do with me about where I grew up and the places that I know? And so I found out about these battles that had been fought between the Union and the Confederacy in New Mexico in 1861 and 62. And as I started to research that more, I figured out that various indigenous communities were involved in different kinds of ways in that conflict. And I thought, this is great. And there had been military historians who'd written about it before. Most people had not combined those stories of the Union, the Confederacy, and Native peoples in that conflict together. And so that became of real interest to me. I also was kind of spurred on. I grew up in Colorado and actually grew up going to DU hockey games. Go Pioneers. So my parents are big boosters and fans and alums. And when I was growing up in Colorado, I never heard about the Civil War in New Mexico. I never heard about the Colorado soldiers who took part. Thousands of men, most of them gold miners, who were either in Denver City or up in the in the diggings in the Rockies and ended up fighting for the Union against the Confederacy and often against indigenous peoples as well. So that interested me. I think whenever you, as a historian, kind of come up against something where it seems like it should be so well known and yet no one seems to talk about it and there's not really any engagement with it in either the memorial landscape or in local history or in public history, then that becomes really interesting. It's always been a really interesting question to me why this particular theater of the war has really functionally been erased from most Civil War histories and from local histories as well in Colorado and New Mexico and Arizona. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered, whether it's researching or writing? Generally, what has been some of the biggest obstacles? Well, one of the challenges, which is actually kind of fun, is the resource base in the Southwest for this project in particular, because for most of the other theaters in the Civil War, we have voluminous records thousands and thousands and thousands of letters and diaries and other kinds of records and newspaper accounts and military records. And for the Southwest, because there were so many fewer soldiers engaged, there are many fewer sources. Also, one of the kind of quirky elements, historians, I think, sort of love the Battle of Glorieta Pass for many reasons. It was the final real battle between the Union and the Confederacy in New Mexico. And it has an interesting component, which is that John Slew, who was a lawyer from Denver in command of Union troops, sent John Shivington and kind of a third of his troops around the back on a flanking maneuver. And they managed to capture the Confederate's wagon train and destroy it. And this actually is the reason why the Confederates could no longer go on with their campaign for the West. So this is an important moment. It's usually called the Gettysburg of the West, the sort of high watermark of the Confederacy where they got turned back. So a lot of people know about it. The Glorieta Pass battlefield has been preserved and is saved. You can go visit it in multiple locations in northern New Mexico. But the problem for historians is that when Union soldiers destroyed that wagon train, they also destroyed 
the diaries and letters and accounts of those Confederate soldiers in that first phase of the Confederate Texans invasion of New Mexico. So on the one hand, as a historian, I'm like, oh, okay, great. This is an important moment. It's a good moment narratively. We can say, here's where everything changed, the tide turned. And then as a historian looking at sources, I'm like, no, why? Like, <laughs> we, we've lost so many records and sketches and interesting things that these Confederates had kind of gathered on the way that we would have had otherwise. So I think the challenge there was going through the Southwest to the archives, finding the materials and then piecing together stories and the narrative of a very complicated theater of the war using many fewer sources. But then also what that kind of forced me to do, if you don't have that many written pieces of evidence, then you turn to other things, right? You turn to material culture, you turn to visual culture, you turn to the landscape itself. And again, because I'm an American studies person, I'm very comfortable with that mode. And I really love that. And use that methodology anyway. So that was a good, I think in the end, a good challenge to have to overcome because it really kind of stretched me in terms of what kinds of sources I was using. And to get into the lead up to the American Civil War, how did the California gold rush and other sort of large scale immigration impact the Western territories of New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, that area? Were there generally many populated areas at that time? There were areas of indigenous population, of very large indigenous populations all across the West before the 1840s, which is when Americans really started to move into what we now know of as the West, but did not come into the United States until after the Mexican-American War, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 48, and then the Gadsden Purchase in 53. So already there were these very large communities. There were also large communities of Mexicans who were living in California and Arizona and New Mexico and had ranches and were living in Tucson and Mesilla in southern New Mexico and Los Angeles and other areas also of the Southwest and the larger West. And it really was gold. And to some extent for the Mormons in Utah, sort of vision of the future that brought a lot of white migrants to the West in the 1840s. And this is an important moment. I think most historians know, and I think most Americans know that this is an important moment, the, the gold rush in California as a moment in westward expansion and in kind of that narrative of American history. But we don't think about it in terms of the Civil War very much. Again, because the West has been kind of erased as a theater. It doesn't even appear on many maps in, in Civil War textbooks, right? And people don't talk about the Colorado gold rush of 58, 59 very much at all, because California kind of sucks up all the attention, as California is wont to do in so many ways. But yeah, those two gold rushes together brought tens of thousands of white men in particular into the West, into mining camps and new cities and towns that they established all throughout the West on native lands. It brought them into conflict with indigenous populations across the West. And it brought them into conflict when the war broke out with each other, because there were a lot of Northerners and Southerners in these mining camps. And so you read a lot about when the Southern states started seceding and then war was ultimately declared in the spring of 1861. There are all these stories in the West of these fights around flagpoles about Southerners kind of coming and taking down the U.S. flag and then the, the Northerners kind of pushing back and raising it back up again. 
a lot of fistfights, some gun battles at those flagpoles in Denver, in Taos, and in San Bernardino, many other kind of cities and towns across the West. And so there was a real sense that the West was in play because of that. There were a lot of Southerners living in these places. Nobody knew kind of how Hispano New Mexicans, who had been Mexican citizens just 10 years before, how they were going to respond. Uh, no one really knew what the Mormon population in Utah was going to do. And because they had, of course, launched their own rebellion against the U.S. just a few years before. And then there are hundreds of indigenous populations across the West who had all kinds of different relationships with the U.S. government. And what, yeah, and that all depended on where they were located and their proximity to any kind of forts that the U.S. military had been building in the wake of the California Gold Rush and the Colorado Gold Rush in order to protect those migrants kind of along the two major thoroughfares, which were the Oregon Trail to the north and then the Butterfield Overland Mail Route, which was the southern route, which went from Texas to Mesilla on the Rio Grande and then all the way west to Los Angeles. And from a political perspective, did the Democratic and Republican parties envision these territories eventually becoming new states? Was there conflict over slavery in these lands generally in the lead up to the war? How was these kind of new territories uh, viewed? Yeah, exactly. I think this is the narrative that we are most familiar with, right, about the West in this time period is not only gold rush, but also the fight over slavery in the Western territories. So when this huge part of the nation's landmass kind of comes into the United States as either unorganized territories or sometimes states in the wake of the Mexican-American War, then there's a question of what happens to slavery in those places. And so much of the 1850s is kind of given over politically to debates about whether slavery will exist in these new territories of the West. Of course, it's the basis of the 1850 Compromise. It's the whole reason that people are fighting it out in Kansas and Nebraska in 1854 and 56. So all of these discussions are happening. They're talking about the Transcontinental Railroad and where are those tracks going to go? Are they going to go in the north? Are they going to go in the south? And they, that became a political battle. And even something as quirky as uh, in 1853, Jefferson Davis, the future Confederate president, was the Secretary of War. And he managed to convince Congress to give him money to buy camels from the Middle East and bring them to Texas to train them as cavalry mounts so that U.S. Army soldiers could take on particularly Apache horsemen who had been evading them and raiding camps and military forts in the Southwest for as long as the Americans had been there. So even something like that, Davis is arguing for this stronger military presence in the Southwest and recognizing how important the West was going to be, particularly for Southerners, in order to expand their empire of slavery to the Pacific coast. And for them, that's what really kind of was the impetus behind this Confederate invasion that was launched. It kind of was planned in the summer of 1861 and then really got going in late summer and then in the fall and winter of 61-62. And to kind of finish up about the lead up to the war, from a Native American perspective, how did they go about trying to navigate this constant sort of relocation that was going on as a result of immigration? Was the U.S. government attempting to reach any sort of long-term settlement or was it sort of a year-by-year -year sort of basis? Yeah, this is such an interesting question. And it really, the most important point I think to make about this is that 
what we would consider Indian country or Indian America or Native America is incredibly diverse in all of its particulars. There are still indigenous communities and populations in the East. Of course, we have Indian territory, which is now Oklahoma, which is a very strong base for Native communities, some of them slaveholding. So that became an interesting site of debate at the beginning of the war and diplomacy. And Then there are, again, hundreds of communities across the West who are engaging with Americans in a variety of different ways. And the U.S. government had a kind of evolving Indian policy. It had a couple components, particularly after 1830 and the Indian Removal Act. There was a treaty component where the goal was always to establish peace with Native peoples. What the government meant by that was, of course, no more warfare, no more attacks, by indigenous horsemen on white wagon trains or towns or mining camps. And what they also meant by that is preferably removal and or kind of eradication. If they could not kind of remove and get rid of native people, then they wanted to assimilate them culturally, which was a form of kind of cultural annihilation. So there was the treaty making, the removal, this idea that Native people should be confined to reservations was an increasingly popular idea in the antebellum period before the Civil War. And then there was military action. And depending on the circumstances, all of those different ways of approaching Native people were happening in a different order. (laughs) So in some cases, military action came first, then treaty making and removal to a reservation. Sometimes the treaty came first, And then there was attempted removal, which resulted in military campaigns. And in many cases, reservations were never established for particular groups. Or in some cases, there was no removal necessarily. There was the creation of a reservation in the homeland of the indigenous community. So I think, again, the larger point here is there's a huge range of experiences and actions that both tribal nations and the United States are taking uh, in reference to each other in the antebellum period. And so when the Civil War breaks out, Indian policy is still really kind of flexible. And in the Southwest, we see both Confederate and Union commanders kind of taking advantage of that flexibility in a lot of different ways and establishing different kinds of relationships with different indigenous communities. And to get into the war itself, which starts in 1861, how did each side generally view the Western territories in the wider context of the war? Did they see it as a very important strategic theater or as a sideshow? How was that viewed? Sure. Well, at the beginning of the war, each side, the Union and Confederacy, wanted control of the West. And they wanted it for a couple of reasons. They wanted it for gold. So that's, again, the gold rushes of California and Colorado become important. In 1864, gold is discovered in Montana in the Northern Rockies, and that's a major kind of explosion because gold is backing the value of U.S. bonds, of all kinds of currency. And so they really needed gold not only to sort of get pumped into the economy to fund the war effort, but also to kind of stabilize the economies in the North and the South. They also each wanted to have control of Pacific ports because one of the Lincoln administration's first acts was to establish a blockade against the South. And they did that, actually. That was their most successful (laughs) strategy in the first couple of years of the war. They weren't great in the land war at the very beginning. 
but they established that blockade pretty quickly and it was very effective. And so if the Confederacy had gained California, even Southern California and the ports at Los Angeles and San Diego, they would have had an outlet for cotton and they could have shipped things in and out pretty effectively. So gold and Pacific ports were hugely important. So strategically, they wanted to have, each side wanted to have control of those. And then kind of ideologically, the West was also important because Northerners and Southerners during the 1840s and 50s are developing totally different and opposing kind of worldviews and views of the United States as a nation. And so Northerners are developing a real interest in this idea of a kind of free soil America that all of America will become land that white Americans, basically, it's a very white vision, would be able to farm, to ranch, to establish merchant stores, to be able to mine in the mountains, develop it in whatever way that they wanted it, and to do so freely. This all goes back to the kind of Jeffersonian agrarian ideal, right? The independent farmer and businessman who is able to establish himself and kind of be free of government interference and support himself and his family. Now, Southerners had a very different vision that was based on the establishment of slavery. And so they wanted to expand their empire of slavery from the Atlantic to the Pacific coast. And they even had, there were those among them who had dreams of really also moving south into Mexico, the Caribbean, and Latin America and creating a real hemispheric empire of slavery confederacy. So that's that kind of ideological importance where they're thinking to themselves about the future of the nations that they imagine. And that's an important part of warfare, right? You have to have a kind of goal that your soldiers are fighting for, right? Or a sense of nationalism, a sense of patriotism. And part of that is that future vision. So the West is a very important part of that vision. So for that reason, both sides were interested in controlling it. And this, again, is why Henry Hopkins Sibley, who had been posted in Taos before the war began, quit his position in the U.S. Army, went east, convinced Jefferson Davis that he could raise an army of Confederate soldiers to invade New Mexico. And if they could take New Mexico and take all of its forts, then they could take California. And then perhaps from there, establish this foothold and take the entire West. And if they had done that, not only would they have control of gold and ports, but they would actually surround the Union on the land side and basically lock them in and not allow them to move westward. And that would have been very useful. Their problem, of course, is they didn't have enough manpower to really do that. And the Union could not really sacrifice a lot of their men to secure the West either. So they pretty much left it to the commanders who were already in the field to defend New Mexico from Confederate invasion. So this is why the numbers of soldiers in the West are really quite small. There's about anywhere from four to 5,000 Union soldiers defending New Mexico territory against about 3,000, but really kind of functioning 2,500 Confederate soldiers. And most of the Confederates were mounted on horseback. They were cavalry. And most of the Union troops were on foot. And the Union army was actually the first multiracial army in the war itself. So there were gold miners from Colorado. There were these kind of army regulars, which are professional soldiers, who had already been stationed at forts in the West and kind of came together along the Rio Grande. And then the Union commander, uh, ERS Canby, recruited Hispanos 
into the first New Mexico, which was commanded by Kit Carson. And Kit Carson also hired Native American scouts and spies, mostly Utes and Higarella Apaches. And so you have this really interesting army of the Southwest that really represents its racial and cultural diversity coming together to defend against these Confederate Texans who are all white with some German companies thrown in there. So an immigrant component there as well. But the numbers are quite small. So really functionally about seven to 8,000 soldiers, which has led a lot of some Civil War military historians to call the Southwest a sideshow because there were so few men engaged compared to the massive numbers in the East. But I like to make the argument that the conflict in this region, if you understand warfare as a process that not only involves armies in the field, but also involves taking towns and taking land and keeping or taking territory, those 7,000 soldiers were fighting over half the country. (laughs) <laughs> for control of half of the nation's landmass. And so sort of their success or their failure based on acreage per soldier was massive. And many, many, many more times the acreage per soldier in the Eastern theater. So of course I contend that it was not a sideshow, but instead it was a theater that was important in a lot of really unexpected ways and a theater that we should think about more carefully as part of the Civil War proper, which really was a national conflict that involved the North, the South, and the West. And can you just kind of briefly describe the fighting that went on between the Union Confederacy? Was there a specific battle that was super decisive or pretty much brought the conflict to an end in the West? Yeah, so the major engagements between the Union and the Confederacy took place in February and March of 1862. So they were fighting in kind of late winter, early spring, which we know as Westerners is a volatile time in terms of weather. And it could be snowing, it could be 65 degrees and sunny, who knows, right? And so the Confederates actually were not prepared for this at all. They were not prepared for the aridity, the high desert conditions of New Mexico territory. And their battle plan revolved around kind of marching from fort to fort, sacking that fort, taking its provisions and its weapons, and then moving on. And so the first battle that took place at Valverde, it was actually supposed to be an assault on Fort Craig, but Henry Sibley figured out that his men could not take that strong of a defense, and so he had to go around it. So he actually crossed the Rio Grande onto the eastern side and went to the crossing at Valverde, and that's where the two armies met. And that was actually a victory for the Confederates. They had a charge late in the day that was victorious. And my rule of thumb is always when you're looking at a Civil War battle that it doesn't matter who wins the first couple charges. It only matters who wins the last (laughs) because that is going to be the moment of victory where one army takes the field. So the Confederates won and they managed to push the Union soldiers back to Fort Craig, which is interesting. It was a victory, but it was a huge problem because they had not taken Fort Craig. So they had no food and no (laughs) new weapons. And many of their horses have been killed. So some of them were dismounted. But they kept moving north. They took Albuquerque. They took Santa Fe. So this is interesting. They were one of the few Confederate armies in the field to ever take and occupy a northern capital. Because of course, uh, Santa Fe was the capital of New Mexico territory. And so they kept moving because they had to. And they ended up 
meeting with a different army that was coming south from Colorado, again, under John Slew and Shivington, and met them at Apache Canyon and Glorieta Pass. And again, Apache Canyon was kind of a draw. And then Glorieta Pass, the Confederates actually won the battle on the field of battle, but Shivington had gone around the back and burned the wagon train. And so one of the contentions of the book, there are nine kind of protagonists in the Three-Cornered War, but many readers have pointed out to me, and I think it's true that the 10th protagonist is actually the desert itself, the high desert, because it exerts such an influence on the way that soldiers fight and the way that the commanders were thinking of their armies in the field. Because if you don't have any kind of transportation, if you do not have a regular food supply and you do not have access to fresh water, you will die within three or four days in the high desert. So this was a huge crisis for the Confederate troops. So this is why, again, historians think of Glorietta Pass as kind of the pivotal military moment in the fight between the Union and the Confederacy, because this is where the Union was successfully able to turn them back and force them to retreat all the way back more than a thousand miles from Santa Fe all the way back into Texas. And so they lost about 30% of their men in this campaign doing this. Not much like in the Eastern Theater, not all of them due to battle wounds, but most of them due to exposure, to illness. They had a big smallpox outbreak. And all of these kinds of exposure illnesses or sunstroke dehydration that were killing these men on the march. So that the major thing to know about this campaign in this theater is that it was very much influenced by environmental conditions. And it was really, really important that the Union was able to destroy all of the Confederacy's supplies in that kind of major moment at Glorieta Pass. And to kind of ask about the Native American role, I know you mentioned that there was kind of a variety of approaches that different tribes took in terms of dealing with the government, at least during the war, did some Native Americans see an opportunity to retake lost territory with the country split in two? Did Native Americans fight for one or for the Union or the Confederacy or even both? How did those dynamics work in the West? Sure. Yeah, it's really interesting to look at this moment from the Indigenous perspective, because there had been especially between Chiricahua Apaches and the U.S. and Navajos in the U.S., there had been a lot of tension and a lot of fighting already in the late 1840s and 50s as the U.S. military kind of encroached in Apacheria in the south and then Diné Bikea in the north and started building forts basically within those indigenous territories. So there were conflicts based on that for more than a decade before the Civil War began. So from their perspective, what's interesting is that both of those groups were always kind of launching attacks on these military bases. And then when the war broke out and Canby started to bring all of his troops together on the Rio Grande to meet the Confederate threat, he was abandoning those forts in indigenous territories. And so from their perspective, they're like, oh, we were successful. Right. We have finally succeeded in driving them out because they have abandoned their military forts, their positions in our territory. So initially, I think the response was, this is fantastic. Like we are actually now they had been asserting their sovereignty the entire time, but they had successfully done so reading this kind of sign. So it was a little bit of a misreading what was going on. But later, the U.S. military had to fight their way back into those installations and to to build more forts where they had been before. Also, Chiricahuas and Navajos very much took advantage, and Mescalero Apaches as well, very much took advantage of the fact that suddenly there are all these 
enormous wagon trains. There are soldiers camps. There are corrals. There are thousands of horses where there didn't used to be (laughs) before. And the raiding economy had been long established in the Southwest among both Hispanos and Native peoples. And so this was like a huge gift, right? This was amazing. So they really exploited the war between the Union and the Confederacy and were constantly raiding both Union and Confederate camps during the entire time that they were fighting each other. So you'll see in the records of when Sibley's records and Baylor's on the part of the Confederacy and then Canby's, there are all these notations like, oh, we've been raided again, had to send, you know, and they would send men out to try and recapture their horses and kind of take the battle to these Native groups. And they were never successful. Never. Because Indigenous communities had been in the region for hundreds of years and had really honed this style of raiding. And they knew the landscape. They knew exactly what to do. They had a very coordinated plan. They always attacked in small groups, usually very early in the morning or late at night. They would attack. They'd take as many animals as they could, and then they would scatter. And that's very hard to combat that, but they were losing, both the Union and the Confederacy was losing manpower to sending these soldiers off to kind of chase Chiricahuas and Chiricahua and Navajo raiders. And so that engagement is affecting Union and Confederacy, like manpower and also focus during this campaign. To the extent that when Sibley wrote his report of the campaign at the end in May of 1862, he wrote that there was going to be no way to deal with Navajos and Apaches in particular, and that if the Confederacy was going to make any inroads in the West, they would have to defeat them and enslave them. That was the only way that they would be able to deal with them. On the flip side, and I think a lot of times where we often talk about the relationship between Indigenous communities, tribal nations, and the U.S., through warfare. But I think the example of the Odom in Arizona, the Pima and Maricopa people, is a really good one because they actually established a pivotal position on the Gila River, northwest of Tucson, and they were agriculturalists. And they had for years been providing food for people who were traveling along that Southern road, both white Americans, Mexicans, and other indigenous groups. And so when James Carlton brought his army from Los Angeles to the Rio Grande, he actually met with those leaders, Odom leaders, and hammered out a kind of agreement that they would provide him with wheat in particular and other forms and other kind of fruits and vegetables and basically function as his army's quartermasters during this campaign of theirs. So that was an instance in which there was no warfare involved. That was a an agreement made. It was not called a treaty necessarily, but it was a kind of trade agreement that they made. And they gave them a kind of cloth, kind of red cloth that was very common as a bartering kind of currency in the Southwest. And they also gave them weapons. It was a barter exchange for those foodstuffs. So that is a really good example of how divergent the experiences could be and the relationship could be between the U.S. military and tribal nations during this period. And to kind of wrap up the war, was there any sort of fighting after the Battle of Glorieta passed? Did the war ultimately kind of come to an end once a truce was called in the eastern part of the country um, in 1865? Or was there ever fighting after the fact? How did it ultimately come to an end? This is really interesting. And there's a lot of discussion right now in Civil War history about when the war actually ended. And most military historians will say it ended at Appomattox. (laughs) Like that 
was the big surrender. And even though there were other surrenders to come in the Carolinas and in Texas, it didn't quite end until June, but it did end in 1865. Now, in the Southwest, what's interesting is that James Carleton, who had been in command from September of 1862, basically continued on past that moment with no change to his approach and his use of U.S. military forces in the Southwest. He continued to send men out to build forts in Native territories. He continued to protect miners. There was a gold rush in Arizona in 1863, and so he sent soldiers out to build a fort north of Tucson in the mountains there, where Prescott is now, to defend those miners and establish that community there. And he continued to campaign against Navajos in particular and to remove them to Bosque Redondo, which is a reservation site that he had picked out himself and had established on the Pecos River in central New Mexico. And so what that, to me, is another reason that this theater is so interesting to look at. Because certainly people in New Mexico heard about Appomattox. They celebrated it. They didn't hear about it until two weeks after the fact because of <laughs> they didn't have telegraph wires. And so the news took a little while to kind of trickle into New Mexico. But once they heard about it, they did celebrate it. And they did see that moment of Appomattox as the end of the war between the Union and the Confederacy. However, the Union's war against indigenous peoples continued and their interest in the conquest of the West continued really with the same themes, the same personnel and the same strategies as during the war itself. And so this is why I argue in the three cornered war that the civil war really was the Indian. I think a lot of times in American history classes, we tend to say, okay, there's the coming of the civil war. Then there's the civil war. Then there's Western expansion and the Indian wars, right? And so the contention of this book is all of that is happening at the same time. Like all of those dynamics are in play during the coming of the war and during the Civil War proper. So there are Indian wars happening and they are part of a Civil War kind of context in ways that we really need to pay attention to to understand the war in its totality. And to just ask some concluding questions, did the aftermath of the war kind of set the stage for the kind of culmination of what we know as Manifest Destiny or the sort of modern West? I mean, did more people move out West as a result of the end of the war? How did it impact the way people kind of viewed the West and how it kind of set the stage for the United States heading into the 20th century even? Yeah, sure. I think it was important for two reasons. One, the military conflict really brought a huge number of soldiers into the Southwest when there not had not been that many before. And so it really established a military imprint on that landscape in a way that was very important for determining the relationship between the federal government and indigenous peoples from that point forward. And I think the federal government became increasingly convinced that they were going to have to deal with Native peoples and they would prefer to establish a treaty and remove them to a reservation to get them out of the way of white migrants. And if that didn't work, then there might be warfare. Then they would send out soldiers to deal with them. And so that became the kind of the Indian War policy. And that really took root during the Civil War and then in the years after. And ultimately, the federal government just abandoned treaty making altogether and said, we're not going to do it. We're going to just remove you. And if you don't like it, then 
yeah, we're going to actually do battle. Definitely for Navajo people, the Civil War was a watershed moment because they had had a, a disastrous surrender to the U.S. Army and had been removed to Bosque Redondo and 25% of the people there had died because of the terrible conditions. It was a complete and utter failure. They were able, though, to negotiate their way back to their homeland, which was fairly unusual in 1868. So this is an important point, I think, for them in particular in their history, a kind of turning point, a watershed moment. So that's the kind of military side. Politically, what's interesting also is that one of the things we also don't think about much when we talk about American history is that the Homestead Act and the Pacific Railway Act and the Morrill Land Grant Act, which created all the money to found schools like Colorado State University, those were all passed in 1862 in the middle of the war. And they were passed after the Union was able to push the Confederates back to Texas. So when the Lincoln administration and the Republican Congress knew that they had the West in hand, and those were measures specifically designed to open the pathways of migration and settlement and settler colonialism to white Americans, right? So that is hugely significant because that shapes the history of the West. Those two things, the ability of people, particularly union veterans, there's an interesting element of the Homestead Act we don't usually talk about, which is that only people who had not taken up arms against the federal government could file for homestead claims. So this was a like Northern Union vision. And so Southerners were not allowed to take up these. So there you have that particular context. Then the Transcontinental Railroad was going to be this kind of great connector, right? It was going to connect the Missouri River to California. And it was going to be able to take people all the way across in just what seemed to them like lightning speed. And this was just going to increase the pace of settler colonialism, and then also the range of settler colonialism. And it was very effective at doing so. So I think militarily and politically, this moment of the Civil War is a real turning point in Western history and also Indigenous history, and then also American history more broadly involving all of the regions. And my final question is, what do you think the legacy of the war in the Western territories ultimately is? I think settler colonialism is the legacy. That because of the ways that the Union Army was able to mobilize their soldiers against Native communities after they pushed the Confederates back, this really kind of opened the way for the federal government to start thinking about how they could remove Native peoples and then, quote unquote, civilize them on reservations and sort of keep them out of the way to provide for manifest destiny to kind of take place all across the West. And so I think that is the one major element. And it really has continued to shape the way that Western states and communities and Native nations have engaged with the federal government in the years since then. Today, I think there is still a lot of distrust. There's still a lot of tension between tribal nations and the U.S. government. The U.S. government continues to try to assert itself in land taking and just kind of disregard Native land rights in all sorts of different ways. And we've seen that in particular in the last four years. And that has created some serious problems. And we're seeing also in a lot of Native communities very high COVID rates. And there are reasons for that that have roots kind of in this period and in this pretty disastrous relationship between tribal nations and the government. 
So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Nelson. I think it was super, again, insightful in terms of the way that, again, a theater of the war that often gets overlooked, again, just because of sources, because of different battles, all of that. So I'm glad she did that extensive research. And again, just as someone who goes to school in Colorado, I think oftentimes people assume that that area really had nothing to do with the Civil War and wasn't really involved when in fact, I think it did play an important role. And all of those states for that matter in the West, I think played a role, maybe not as much as some of the Eastern parts of the state, but definitely I think one that often gets overlooked. And again, I think in terms of consequences, I think it sort of set this stage for sort of the modern Western movement in terms of manifest destiny, in terms of the way people kind of perceive the West in terms of adventure and outdoors and all of that. And obviously now there are huge cities there, such as Denver and Phoenix and Las Vegas and all these places that weren't that populated. And now they are. But I think that really starts going back to the American Civil War in the way that, as Dr. Nelson explains, sort of brought people there because of the war. And I think, again, it's just there were unfortunate consequences when it came to Native Americans, which, again, I think is a part of American history that often gets overlooked. And especially in the context of the American Civil War, set the stage for the battles between the U.S. government and Native American tribes. And as she explained, the kind of distrust that goes on to this day and continues to be a difficult relationship and a difficult part of American history that, you know, is a tough conversation to to talk about, but ultimately should because it happened. And again, I think it's just one of the unfortunate and tragic consequences of the American Civil War and overall American history. But I hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, I think that there's a lot to explore with the American Civil War, and I'm glad I was kind of able to do my first episode on it on a topic that I think often gets overlooked. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.